Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Murder on the Space Coast is brought to you by attorney Steve Casanova. Check him out at surferlaw.com. Previously on Murder on the Space Coast. We had gathered a lot of stuff. I mean, we tried doing, we tried finding evidence so we could do DNA testing. We actually thought, you know, we went in down to the courthouse there and we actually found the rape kit. And then we thought we really had hit a home run because this would be really, uh, you know, significant evidence. That had never been, and it turned out that you could get no results from it. So, the, you know, the question is, does evidence of innocence or evidence of um, a, a grievous miscarriage of justice does it actually matter? In some cases, courts have said no. I'm Florida Today news columnist John A. Torres, and welcome back for the sixth and final chapter of Murder on the Space Coast. Once again, a warning. Murder on the Space Coast is about a murder, and things can get pretty graphic. It may not be suitable for sensitive or younger listeners. A point of clarification before we get started. In an earlier episode, I said Gary Bennett was 25 when Helen Nardi was murdered. In truth, he had turned 26 about three weeks before Nardi was killed. My apologies. Okay, so what we know so far... Gary Bennett has spent more than 33 years in prison for the murder of Helen Nardi in 1983. We know she did some very bad things, including selling her young children for sexual purposes in exchange for rent, and she was also having sex with her 65-year-old son-in-law. We know Gary's palm print was in her trailer. We know the lead detective in the case used to rent a trailer to Helen's daughter and husband, who seemed like they should have been potential suspects. Helen was sleeping with her daughter's husband after all. But the police didn't spend much time on the couple, Mary and Kermit Parkins, for reasons I've never been able to figure out. We know the dog handler who testified that his dog found Gary's scent on the murder weapon was a liar and a fraud. We know the jury heard that the dog evidence was the equivalent of finding Gary's fingerprint on the murder weapon. We know that Gary passed a polygraph test and a pubic hair found at the scene was not his. But we also know that Gary was troubled He tried to kill himself on several occasions. He set a fire, aimed a toy gun at a cop, and told police he needed psychiatric help. We know a nonprofit group known as Centurion Ministries took on Gary's case after he'd spent years in prison and won a request for DNA testing in the case. But alas, there was nothing in the rape kit to test. Here is another strange twist. Remember how I told you earlier that the state fought William Dillon and Wilton Dedge in their efforts to have evidence in their cases tested for DNA? The DNA that would eventually exonerate them completely. Well, Gary had to fight as well, which was to be expected. But it's a little curious that the former prosecutor, who was then a sitting judge, would actually write a nine-page letter opposing the DNA testing and going over all the merits of the case to a prosecutor assigned to look into the matter. 
Remember the name John Dean Moxley? Well, he was now a judge, and previously he was the main prosecutor in the Dedge, Dillon, and Gary Bennett cases. Uh Uh-huh, that's right. I've met regularly with a panel of lawyers we asked to listen to Murder on the Space Coast for their input, and just about each one praised Moxley the judge, but could not explain his actions as a prosecutor or why he would write that letter. One of those was attorney Bob Molitaire. If he wrote those letters as a judge, I'm a little concerned that if he was still a prosecutor, I'd understand. It's okay, right. Um, but, but, but I'm a little, a little distracted by the concept of, of as a sitting judge, com, you know, commenting on a prior case and you handled it. In the letter, Moxley actually says that the fact that Gary could not remember how his palm print wound up on the closet door was proof of guilt. Proof of guilt? Can you account for all of your palm prints? What if someone was murdered someplace you've been? I asked Gary's lawyer about it, Paul Casalaro from Centurion Ministries. You know, Judge Moxley, who was the prosecutor, wrote Ashton a letter urging him, you know, not to rule in your favor. Right. Is that, I mean, uncommon or is that, I mean, it just seemed out of bounds. You know, he's a judge now. He's not, it just seemed weird to me. Yeah, it was weird, and we thought it was weird, too. I mean, I was kind of shocked by it, too, when I saw it. We know a judge approved DNA testing of evidence, but there was nothing left to test. So now what? Castellaro had one more long shot he wanted to try. So, I mean, it was those combination of things gave us... We were pretty enthusiastic about the case, and we spent a lot of time and a lot of energy on uh, trying to establish his innocence it, it, or establish that he was entitled to a new trial. The fact we took was to show that this Preston guy and his dog was a fraud. And then we try to use the couple of cases that uh, were documented where subsequent DNA testing was able to be performed. I think one was the Dillon case. Sure, yeah, and Dedge, yep. And the other was what? It it was Dedge, you know, Wilton Dedge. Yeah, right, Dedge. And and we used those to to say, wait a minute, this this is very clear that this guy's a fraud. And, you know, well, we had a bunch of procedural problems because it was a issue of the junk science nature of this whole dog sniffing uh, identification had uh, been litigated previously. So the case had these incredibly uh, difficult procedural hurdles um, where they, there have been prior rulings on ineffective assistance of counsel and there have been prior rulings on this kind of junk science thing. So right. we were kind of really in a bind. And so what we try to use was the Dredge and the Dillon cases as newly discovered evidence to you know, get us back into court. So the idea was actually pretty unique. Paul argued in his motion that since we know the dog handler lied in the Dillon case and he lied in the Dedge case, then it was safe to assume he lied in Gary's case as well, and the evidence was false. That, even though there was no DNA evidence to exonerate Gary as in the other cases, should be enough to grant a new trial. But the only way to get that argument before a judge would be to call it new evidence. After we lost on the DNA testing... We then filed on this newly discovered evidence on the, on the, on the Dredge and Dillon theories that, that, that those, the DNA testing in those cases showed that this guy was a fraud and, uh, and it changed the entire you know, kind of structure of the case and, and, and the, uh, you know, the framework of the evidence. But he had something even bolder planned. Gary's attorney, Paul Castellaro, 
filed a shocking motion. He asked the court to recuse all the judges of the 18th Judicial Circuit from any involvement in the case, basically because the former prosecutor, John Dean Moxley, was now a judge in the 18th. The motion was already being handled by Prosecutor Jeff Ashton out of Orlando, because Brevard County Prosecutor Norman Wolfinger had briefly represented Gary when he was a public defender, and he didn't want any conflict of interest. So Paul took it further. I mean, he was basically saying that Brevard prosecutors did some bad things in the 80s. He felt that Moxley's presence on the bench could sway another judge's decision. You know, it just, I don't know, we just got... You know, listen, it's always difficult when you go against um, a, uh, a well-respected uh, prosecutor is now a, uh, a prosecutor is now a well-respected judge. Right. I mean, I think it is, you know, it's a... It's a, it's a hurdle that you have to overcome. Yeah. And, oh. I mean, we were, we were alleging prosecutorial misconduct quite clearly. I thought the attempt took some moxie. In the end, it really didn't matter. His motion to recuse the judges was denied by one of those judges. And then the motion for a new trial languished for a while because Ashton had his hands full with the Casey Anthony trial. In the end, the courts denied his motion for a new trial without even allowing him a chance to make his case in open court. I mean, I, I don't know why they, uh, you know, I mean, to be quite honest, I, I don't, I, I, I never got the, uh, I never quite understood why we couldn't have even gotten a hearing on the evidence that we presented. In, 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 in that, you know, the Dredge and Dillon things were, I mean, I, I thought pretty, uh, pretty compelling newly discovered evidence. The local attorneys on our panel agreed that the presence of dog handler John Preston, later declared a charlatan by the Arizona Supreme Court, which reopened all the cases he was involved in, should have resulted in a new trial or at least a hearing. Here is attorney J. Mason Williams IV. Damn, that's a cool name. Obviously, junk science is a big concern here. I, the fact that, you know, the the Arizona Supreme Court's even weighed in. I certainly, that's not binding in our Florida courts, but certainly is majorly concerning that they have, have you know, basically overturned every case that this gentleman has been involved, you know, that gentleman that was involved in uh, for the dog handling. And, um, and certainly I can see, I've seen cases that have been overturned for far less. While all this court stuff was playing out, Gary received a letter from someone who urged him not to give up hope. It was from William Dillon, Remember Dylan from Satellite Beach spent almost 28 years in prison for a murder that he did not commit. Same prosecutor, same dog handler, and the same use of jailhouse informants. William Dylan has written me a couple of times. I've written him a couple of times. Uh, he, in fact, sent me $150. And said, uh, Gary says, uh, yeah, I know you're innocent. He said, there's... All the evidence shows that you're innocent. He says, we know you were framed. He says, uh, I'm sending this to you. He said, I want you to get you something out of the store. Have yourself a good time. And that was the first time. And it was $100. And the next time a $50 thing came. And I, I can't believe that this man, he says, Gary, I've written songs about you. He said, uh, don't ever give up hope. He said, there is always hope. It's people like him that have kept me going. Those letters, however took their toll on Dylan. 
Well, it's a matter of fact, you know, you can never ever give up hope. I mean, it's, it's, it almost windles and goes down to a whisper. But you know, there's just that something special thing. When you haven't done something, regardless of whether anybody believes you, it dwindles down to a small whisper, but there's always some great thing that comes up and lifts the spirits and says things. And you know, I used to, I used to get letters from Gary because I never met him personally, but I, like you said, the case itself, has so much similarity to mine. I mean, it's almost perfected to the T of the same way they wrongfully convicted me. And I had such a connection with him that I, I wrote him and I sent him things, or I, you know, I tried to talk with him. But in receiving the letters back, it put me in such a place that it absolutely broke my heart. And I looked around, there was nothing I could really do. There was nothing I could really sense this. And it kept taking me to bad places. It kept the nightmares started coming back. And, it was just really, really hurtful thing, and I think about him all the time, and I try to always pump his name up to any kind of news, just to have somebody look. I don't know the case, I wasn't there, but I, I just wanted to have somebody look, because it has such a similarity for me. It has such a perfect a simulation to my wrongful conviction. And even as Gary's legal options and hope fade like old yellowing photographs in a shoebox, he remains firm in his resolve to never accept freedom in exchange for an admission of guilt. Do you believe in your heart that you're ever going to walk out of here a free man? No, I don't. Uh, I try not to. Uh, it is, I try to have faith, but if it's going to happen, it's going to happen. If it's not going to happen, it's not going to happen. I want, there's nothing more than I want in this world. I can taste my freedom. That's how bad I want it, but I will not lie for it. I will not say, yeah, I did it. Even if they offered, because, not because I want their money. I don't give a damn about their money. I want to be able to go to mom's grave. I want to be able to go to my sister's grave. I want to be able to go up and meet my nieces and my nephews, my great nieces and nephews in Ohio I've never met without somebody's permission without being threatened, you better be back within four days or you're going back to prison. I don't, I, I don't want to go through that. There's no way I could survive through that. I would get out there, I'd get a gun, I'd borrow a gun or something, and I'd blow my brains out. There's no way I could survive through that. He kept asking me for an update on his case, and I couldn't bring myself to tell Gary that there is nothing happening right now. And unless there is any sort of new evidence brought forward or some sort of legal miracle then he, well, he will likely die in prison. And that's a fact that continues to torture his sisters and nieces. I recently spoke to Gary's sister, Donetta, who lives in Ohio. Donetta, can you talk about what Gary was like as a child, as a little boy? You know, what are your best memories of him or, you know, earliest memories of him? Okay. Uh, he was a very loving, giving little boy. He was our little brother. I mean, and, you know, we were always there for him when we knew of how Gary Sr. was. And so if Patricia or I called Gary Peewee, that's what I've called him all his life. And if they ever did anything and could get in trouble, my sister Karen and I would take up for him and say we did it because we knew the beating that they were going to get from my father. And so, I mean, he, he tried his best. He was, he was a good little boy. 
He was a very good little boy. And he tried and tried, and then he started, he had those seizures, started having those seizures. And everybody says it's from epilepsy. My father, when he was about nine and a half years old, he did something. And my father hit him in the head with a two-by-four. Oh, my God. Yes, and I believe that is what started when he started having the seizures and everything. And before that, he'd gotten bit by a coral snake. And when he was about three, he drank brake fluid. Oh, boy. And so, I mean, but he really did not have a father figure, per se, in his life. Life in prison has not been any kinder. There have been fights, humiliations, and sexual assaults. And sometimes, thinking about those things causes Donetta to wonder just how much more her brother can take. There's times I wish that when he, when he, he was hurt there that he would have died. And I feel so guilty because I didn't want him to go through any more torture. And while we're talking about Gary and his past, I did go back to him with some questions after I found some documents recounting his apparent attraction to young girls and suggesting that he had been responsible for that fire. There was also the issue of two arrests for male prostitution. I had hoped to talk with him on the telephone, but we couldn't make that happen. So we exchanged a couple of letters He had no recollection of writing a letter admitting to the attraction and said that was a practice of the Pombe police any time someone asked for help. He categorically denied being attracted to children, ever, and pointed to his record of prison infractions, which, while kind of lengthy, includes not one sexual misdeed. He did admit to being arrested in California for male prostitution, but can't remember anything like that happening in New York. I've always tried to be truthful with you, he wrote. In a subsequent letter, he apologized for the tone in his previous letter. He didn't have to. Now back to the present, and Gary looking like he's largely out of luck, as if he had any in the first place. We all thought that this would be straightened out and he would go free, and the trial was even a joke. From the time the judge instructed the jury he had another trial starting on Monday and he wanted this wrapped up ASAP till the time of sentencing, 36 hours. It reminded me when you see those old films about old Southern trials where the judge and the prosecutor are old drinking buddies and stuff and they just laugh at the defense attorney, you know. She saved her harshest words for Dean Moxley, saying the former prosecutor and retired judge should be prosecuted himself. And for now deceased Norman Wolfinger, who never overturned Gary's case while he was the state attorney. Wolfinger, remember, fought against the dog evidence when he was a public defender, but then refused to act on the Preston cases when he became the state attorney. I mean, they made their careers on putting people away that were innocent, and they didn't care how they sleep at night. And, you know, I, I hope normal, if there's a hell, I hope that normal finger is burning in it for his part in this. So as of right now, there is no happy ending for Gary and his family. You heard in the last podcast that current state attorney Phil Archer 
said in an email response that he would not re-examine Gary's case. So what options does Gary have? Does he have any? I keep hearing that a jury's decision is sacred and should not be messed with. But what happens when the jury is told a lie and it is presented as evidence? Is it possible to really determine how much weight the jury gave John Preston? I would argue that they gave it a lot of weight, since Prosecutor Dean Moxley told the jury the dog track was the equivalent of a fingerprint. Some of the attorneys we polled agreed. Here is Jay Thacker. Was he labeled as an expert? Was he labeled as just someone? He was labeled as, as yeah. a Right, as so now all of a sudden, you know, you give a greater weight to this individual saying something than an average layman would. So all of a sudden, you know, I know in the closing argument, the state, you know, if they bring an expert, they're just going to keep saying, you heard the expert, you heard the expert. So all of a sudden, the jury's mind is like, well, this guy, I don't know. I mean, I'm just, I'm here, you know, listening, and this expert's telling me, yeah, he found him, and must be true that, you know, why would the state bring him then? So I think they're going to give great weight to him, I mean, at that time. I mean, now, obviously, we look back and we're like, wait a minute, this is baloney. But back in the day, you didn't know that this was, you know, artificial science. So it is kind of sad. Another of the attorneys on the panel, Scott Robinson, said it is imperative for prosecutors to give cases and evidence the smell test, but also said they have the greater burden, the greater responsibility. I think prosecutors are, are different. I think they're different from you know public defenders and defense attorneys. As a defense attorney, you have a client, and you represent that client and that client's interest alone. And um, as a prosecutor, you represent the people. You know the state of Florida. You represent you know the Constitution and everything that it stands for. But that includes the accused as well. No. I'm just really puzzled by the reluctance of Archer and Wolfinger before him to even consider that maybe, just maybe, justice was not served in this case and that an innocent man may be in prison. Archer said that even without Preston's dog-tracking testimony, Gary's conviction would have stood. But how can he say that? Because what else did they really have? A partial palm print? testimony from jailhouse informants that we know can and do lie? Look at the Dillon and the Dedge cases. It's clear now that in this case, and those of others, like Dillon and Dedge, the end result was far more important than how it was achieved. And that is not only sad, but it's kind of scary. Scary, but not really surprising, according to attorney Erica Rogers Feinswag, who worked as a victim's advocate and then as a prosecutor, before going into private practice as a defense attorney. What ends up happening is justice gets lost somewhere. As a prosecutor, that's your job to seek justice. Like he was saying, you're the front line. Um, But statistics, getting your stats in, your trial stats, and convictions and winning sometimes overshadows um, seeking the justice. And... um, you know, that's for some sort of remedy, that's more of a moral, um, individual type situation that you have to breathe into these new prosecutors and to these new lawyers that you're not here to win, you're here to seek justice. Um, and sometimes that's lost. I have to tell you that others in the room later lauded what she said. Other takeaways? Well, 
Look, I've known about some of the problems surrounding this case for years. And it's my job to gather facts and to dig in areas and into things that others would rather just leave alone. And then it's my job to try and make sense of what I've found, to analyze and connect these facts, and then tell you what all of it means. Here goes. I don't know if Gary Bennett killed Helen Nardi or not, but I do know there were enough problems and issues in this case to warrant a new trial or at least a new investigation. Some, not all, of the troubling aspects of this case include the fact that Gary was interviewed by police for 12 hours, even after he'd asked for a lawyer, and that recordings of that interview went missing before the trial. And that the lead investigator used to be a landlord to the victim's family, and he totally ignored other potential suspects, including the victim's son-in-law and sexual partner. And that a fraudulent dog handler, already under investigation for being a phony and a crook, was used as evidence. And that the prosecutor, who was involved in other wrongful incarcerations and exoneration cases, continued to have a stake in this case even after he became a judge, urging others to offer the imprisoned man no relief. It's hard to understand why Florida would not reopen the cases in which John Preston was involved, especially after knowing that Juan Ramos, Wilton Dedge, and William Dillon were sent to prison wrongfully because of his testimony. But the absolute hardest thing to swallow is that there might be an innocent man in prison. I mean, in prison right now as you listen to this. And our system, our courts, and our government have no mechanism in place to help him. All this brought me back to the Wilton Dedge case. He was a Port St. John man in prison for a rape he was innocent of. The state fought to keep him in prison even after the DNA test results showed he could not have been the rapist. If it sounds like something from Hugo's Les Miserables, it's because it is. The attorney general in the case actually argued against admitting the results because of a technicality and actually told an appellate judge that, quote, innocence was irrelevant, close quotes. Yes, you heard that right. When it was all over, Wolfinger said, quote, I don't think we were saying it wasn't relevant. I think we were talking about time frames. I think it's a legal thing. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know either. Here is the Innocence Project's Seth Miller, the organization that helped free Dedge. And even when he, when Wilton Dedge got the DNA test results and petitioned the court to grant him a new trial based on those DNA test results, the prosecution argued that he should not get relief because he didn't get those DNA test results under the new DNA testing regime. So they said that he was he, he was barred. He should have gotten them earlier. And so even though we had the evidence of innocence, the attorney general in the appellate case, they said to the appellate court, innocence is irrelevant. And of course, the, you know, the appellate court disagreed, thankfully, and Wilton was eventually exonerated. But that's the attitude that folks take. It's the, it's the protect the conviction at all costs, even if we have clear evidence that someone's innocent. And unless there's sort of a, a normative behavioral change um, among 
the people who are the institutional actors, the law enforcement, prosecutors, judges, um, we're, you know, we're going to just keep repeating this over and over again, even as the innocence movement exonerates more and more people. And, and so it's, we need real wholesale systemic changes if we want to have a, have a system that we can all be proud of uh, you know, for people who care about a just society. So what does this all mean for Gary Bennett? For now, he finds redemption in knowing that there are some out there who believe he is innocent. I've got one guy in England that has been writing me. Is that right? Yes, his name is uh, Leslie Hunter Jones. And he wrote me and says, I saw your uh, thing on Facebook. He says, I want you to know that you have people who care. And he's written me a couple of times now for me, and I write him back whenever I get extra stamps. I mean, for a person here to hear something like that, that's got to mean... It, it, it means the world to me. Believe it or not, to somebody else, it might mean nothing. To me, it, it's the biggest thing in the world. I've had people write me and say, hey, we know from everything we've read, everything that we, uh, we've we gone through your files, and everything, we know you're innocent. That is the best thing that could ever happen to me, somebody saying that. Right. Just saying that they know that I'm innocent. Wow. He draws his strength from the words of strangers, letting him know that he has not been forgotten and tossed aside, at least not by everyone. We will leave it there for now. I appreciate you listening to the first season of Murder on the Space Coast. Join us next week to listen to some of the voices you've heard throughout the season at a special panel discussion on what might happen next. That event is being held Wednesday, September 14th at Open Mike's Coffee and Lounge on US-1 in Melbourne at 5.30. Just a few tickets remain at $14.95, and that includes a wine or beer and appetizers. You can buy tickets at on.flawtoday.com slash M-O-S-C-L-I-V-E. You'll also be able to find out what we have in store for Season 2 of Murder on the Space Coast. Again, on behalf of the team, editor Mara Bellaby, producer Rob Landers, and myself, John A. Torres, we thank you for listening to Murder on the Space Coast. Brought to you by Florida Today a part of the USA Today Network.